Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. That sound you hear means it's time for some Aggie football conversation, and we have a new Texas A&M expert. Taylor Travis covers the Aggies for Sports Radio 1150 AM and the Zone 102.7 FM in College Station. Great to have you on Houston Sports Talk, Travis. Hey, man, I appreciate you having me on. It's always fun talking Aggie football. Well, we are baptizing you on the show with one hell of a game after opening the season, blowing a Northwestern State team out. The Aggies lose a classic to second-ranked Clemson 28-26. Tigers safety Kavon Wallace intercepts Kellen Mond's two-point conversion in the final seconds to put it away, but the biggest play Wallace made, Taylor, was when he knocked the ball out of the hands of Courtney Davis and through the end zone in the previous drive uh, in the final three, four minutes. What were your initial thoughts when you saw it in real time? And then on the replay, did it look inside or outside the pylon to you at the time? Well, if you saw Jimbo Fisher's reaction after the play, he wasn't too happy to say the least. I don't think the Aggie fan base was either. In real time, it was kind of hard to tell, you know, which side of the pylon that ball went. But from every angle I saw, it looked like the ball went to the left of the pylon, out of bounds. That's a really hard call to make for the referee in real time. I kind of wish that they would have just called it out at the one and then went back and looked at it, considering it's just a huge turning point of the game. I don't really like that rule to begin with. Uh, If the ball goes out of bounds, it's a touchback. I think they need to revisit that and maybe change the rule to where the ball goes out of the back of the end zone. The team on offense keeps possession, but maybe the ball goes back to the 20. There's different ways you can go about that. But to answer your question, in real time, it was really hard to tell. But again, looking at the replays, every angle I saw, I didn't see anything that indicated that ball actually went out at the back of the end zone. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that that play either. I'm a Mizzou fan, and they were up in College Station a, a few years back. And I remember one of the Mizzou players, he takes off, goes nearly 70-some-odd yards for a touchdown. And then the last half yard... Aggie player comes from behind, knocks the ball out of his hands through the end zone and ends up being a touchback. And I think that was 2005, and I think that was Jordan Peterson who knocked that ball out. Yeah, that sounds about I remember. right. I remember, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a throwback. Yep, I was there for that one. But, uh, man, Kellen Mond, man, that's a hell of a pass that he threw to Kendrick Rogers, who made that incredible leaping catch for the final touchdown. Mon was 23 of 40, 430 yards, three touchdowns, zero interceptions. If you're an Aggie fan, what's your level of excitement for what Mon can do from zero to Johnny Manziel level? You know, it's interesting because throughout the offseason, it seemed like 99% of people were just assuming Nick Starkle would be the starter because he started last season. He had a little bit more experience. He's a little more accurate with the football last year because both Starkle and Mon got playing time. Mon came in after Starkle broke his ankle in the season opener and the Starkle came back in afterwards. And you compare the two, Starkle was just a lot more accurate. Mon didn't look great. He had flashes, but he just didn't look great. But once Jimbo came on board, I kept hearing from sources on the inside that Kellen Mond took huge strides in his improvement. Nick Starkle kind of just stayed steady, didn't necessarily take those big strides that Kellen Mond took. Now, Kellen Mond, obviously against Clemson, showed why he was a five-star recruit. But I kept hearing Kellen Mond is the guy to look out for this season. Kellen Mond's going to be the starter. Sure enough, he was the starter. He started against Northwestern State. And I know it's Northwestern State. You can't really have too many takeaways from that game. But one thing you can take away 
Kellen Mond's accuracy was much improved. He was throwing a bunch of balls right on the money. He looked a lot more comfortable in the pocket, which is something we didn't see last year. Last year, when he got even under a little bit of pressure, he would tuck the ball, try to run, scramble out of the pocket. But this year, he just looks like a completely different quarterback. I mean, you look at the game against Clemson, the A&M offensive line, it's no secret. They're not great. They're very young. I think they have four sophomores starting, if I remember right off the top of my head. So Kellen Mom was constantly under pressure. But there was one touchdown, and I think it's the one you're bringing up to Kendrick Rogers at the end of the game. I think it was the last touchdown A&M scored. One of the Clemson defensive linemen, I'm not sure who it was, but grabbed his shoulder pad. And Kellamon kept his eyes downfield and delivered a strike right to Kendrick Rogers. He was accurate all game. He kept making plays. Now, you bring up Johnny Manziel. I think we're never going to see in our generation a quarterback quite like Johnny Manziel. But in Jimbo Fisher's offense, I think Mond, he has an extremely high ceiling. In fact, I would say that at the end of the year, Mond's going to be a top three, top four quarterback in the SEC. You have Tua at Alabama. You have Drew Locke at Missouri, Jarrett Stidham. I would throw Kellamond right there in the mix based off what I saw against Clemson. Now, is Clemson secondary maybe a little bit suspect? Does that have a part of it? Maybe too early to tell. But there's no doubt Kellamond's accuracy was on display the other night. And I think Aggie fans have a lot to be excited about. What else stood out to you from that game, either good or bad? You know, I just said the offensive line wasn't great, but they did play a lot better than I expected. Um, now run blocking wasn't great. Trevion Williams couldn't get anything going all night, but they gave Killamont enough time against the best defensive line in the country to make those plays. So that stood out to me that they played well overall. They definitely exceeded my expectations. A big question mark I had going into the season was the wide receiver position. Jamon Ospin, he was really good last year, but you look at that depth chart at receiver for Texas A&M, they have no juniors and no seniors on the roster. It's all sophomores and freshmen. So going into the season, a big question for me was, who's going to step up and be that wide receiver two, the wide receiver three? Well, Kendrick Rogers, like we talked about before, came through and made monster plays. Cam Buckley made a couple big catches. So that's definitely something that stood out to me, is that Texas A&M has receivers on the roster who can step up and make plays when needed. Um, the secondary, to me, was a little bit disappointed. Derek Tucker missed a big tackle on one of those big plays that uh, Clemson. I think it was the touchdown that Trevor Lawrence had to – I can't remember who the receiver was. I think it was T. Higgins, wasn't it? I think Derek Tucker missed a big tackle there. Charles Oliver was getting picked on all night. But the linebacker play was impressive. They were able to stop the run for the most part. Ataro Alaka led the team with 10 tackles. Tyrell Dotson did his thing. I think Tyrell Dotson's going to end up being a all-SC second-team linebacker. Um, overall, I was just really impressed with what I saw from Texas A&M. They looked like they were way ahead of schedule. And you can kind of see the Jimbo Fisher fingerprints all over the team from a toughness standpoint, from a grit standpoint. I don't think a Kevin Sumlin coach team would have forced the three and out after that touchback. I think they would have kind of rolled over and just, I don't want to say gave up, but just hung their heads and just been emotionally drained after that. But you can really see the Jimbo Fisher effect just all across this football team. Yeah, that was actually my next question was, what did you think of Jimbo Fisher, both his preparation and performance in his first big game in Maroon and why? I mean, it's, it's that big of a difference to you, huh, between him and Sami? The thing about Kevin Sumlin is he would show up for the most part to play against those big games. You know, for example, like tonight or Saturday night against Clemson, 
He beat Auburn when they were a top five team on the road. It's almost like he put all his effort to those one or two games on the schedule that were kind of highlighted. I think Kevin Sumlin would have been able to compete with Clemson for about a half. But that's where it gets tricky because Kevin Sumlin was never able to make those in-game adjustments. I think Brent Venables, Clemson's defensive coordinator, would have been able to make adjustments. And Kevin Sumlin would have been stumped from that point, to be honest with you. But also from a toughness standpoint, it seems like for the last several years, we saw Kevin Sumlin teams get worse as the game went on. They would tire out. We didn't see that the other night. We saw a team that played really good football overall for four quarters and even when they faced adversity, they roasted the occasion. They didn't give up. They showed toughness, grit. They seemed a lot more disciplined. Um, there were very few mistakes. Now, there were mistakes, costly mistakes. Nick Starkle's fumble, the missed field goal. But for the most part, as far as like assignments go on defense, they were just so much more disciplined. And I think that's something you're going to see all year long and throughout the Jimbo Fisher tenure. And it's really promising. It really is. Let me see. Did anybody in College Station notice uh, Sumlin laying an egg in Houston over the weekend? That's baffling to me. I actually thought Kevin Sumlin at Arizona was a really good fit for him because that Pac-12 conference, you know, it, it's a little bit more wide open the SEC. It seems like it would fit his offense. Um, he also has Khalil Tate. It's kind of like when how Kevin Sumlin inherited Johnny Manziel when he came to Texas A&M. At Arizona, he inherited one of the best quarterbacks in the country in Khalil Tate, but Khalil Tate hasn't looked good at all. So it's really baffling. I saw some of the game, you know, I was kind of flipping back and forth. There were several good games on. Every time I flipped back to the U of H Arizona game, it seemed like U of H scored twice. I mean, I I don't know what's going on. I was never sold on Kevin Sumlin as a head football coach, but wow. Who would have guessed that Herm Edwards is 2-0 and and Kevin Sumlin's 0-2? Not me. Yeah, it's weird. The the rose coming off the bloom of uh, coaches that used to be at U of H pretty fast. I mean, Bryles' career totally unravels. Sumlin's career started to unravel. And, of course, uh, Tom Herman's got his own issues uh, up in uh, Austin. So, uh, also, you know, the Aggies, you know, they host uh, Louisiana Monroe at 630 on Saturday. And if any Ags... Uh, you know, if you haven't noticed, they have this little game in Tuscaloosa the next week. <laughs> if they fall to <laughs> Alabama, it, it's not the end of the world, Travis, but I'd say two losses makes it just about impossible to get in the final four playoff, right? Yeah, I think so. You know what? Let's backtrack just a little bit to that Louisiana Monroe game. I actually had this game circled on the calendar as a game I have my eyes on, you know, during the preseason. And it sounds weird, but this is why. Under Kevin Sumlin, it seemed like that when Texas A&M had a big game against a big opponent, the next week they would come out flat, emotionally drained, physically drained, almost like they spent all their effort on that one game. I'm interested to see how the team responds because it's really easy to not only just be kind of hung over from the Clemson game, but to be looking ahead to the Alabama game the following week. Will Texas A&M show up, take care of business, beat this Warhawk team, you know, 42 to 10 or a score that you should or will they allow Louisiana Monroe to hang in the game? Will they come out sleepwalking? It's going to be really interesting to see because it seemed like there were several games in the Kevin Sumlin era, most recently Nichols State last year, where they were tied in the fourth quarter, where it just leaves you scratching your head and wondering, you know, what did they do all week? So I'm really interested to see if Jimbo Fisher is able to get that team fired up for that game because Louisiana Monroe, of course, not a big opponent. It's a team A&M should beat 100 times out of 100, but – It'll be interesting to see if they respond and if they come out angry almost. Right, right. I mean, 
you know, you look around some of the, what went on in college football over the weekend, and there were some other teams that had some issues with some some <laughs> smaller opponents. So you know, it, it happens. It, it, it could it could definitely happen. I mean, when you look ahead to that Alabama game, you know, Alabama and Clemson, that they've been pretty close over the years. Does it make you feel like, even though this one's up in Tuscaloosa, that they would have a chance at winning that game now after watching the Clemson game? Oh man, I I just don't see it. I think that they can keep it close if they keep it kind of low scoring, sort of like they did against Clemson for a while. But as good as Dabo Sweeney is as head coach, Nick Saban's just on a completely different level. And I think from a physicality standpoint, Alabama's just so far beyond where A&M is right now. But I said the same thing going into Clemson game. Look what happened, 28-26. You never know. But to answer your question before, I just remembered. I never got around to answering your question. Yeah, I think two losses would get them out of the college football playoff race. But at the same time, that wasn't really the expectations in year one. I don't think there was even an expectation as far as win total goes. I think this year, year one under Jimbo Fisher, it was more along the lines of the eye test. You know, do you see a difference in the toughness? Do they get better as the year goes on? Or do they fall apart, kind of like those Kevin Sumlin teams where they peaked in October and when November came around, it was just a downhill slide. So, yeah, two losses is going to get them out of the college football hunt, but that wasn't really the expectations year one. Now, with that big contract, will that be the expectation in year three, four, five? Of course. But year one, it's more about establishing your identity, recruiting, and just passing the eye test, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's got, it's going to come to that point. At some point, Aggie fans are going to have to start – saying screw this let's let's expect to win the whole thing let's expect to win the not only the sec but the whole thing but you you don't think uh that shouldn't be the expectation at all this year huh no no no, i don't think so i mean it's early it's year one these guys on the team are kevin someone's players so it's going to take a couple years but what we saw against clemson i think texas a&m's ahead of schedule there was no question there was talent on the football team kevin someone he was a great recruiter. He brought in really good recruits year in and year out. His problem was he couldn't develop that talent. You would get a five-star recruit on campus, for example, Ricky Seals-Jones, who looked great as a freshman, but his sophomore year came around, his junior year came around, even his senior year, he never really took those big strides. He was the same player as a senior as he was as a freshman. I think under Jimbo Fisher, you're going to see that talent develop. You're going to see those recruits blossom into the players that they're supposed to become. And I think two or three years into his uh, tenure at Texas A&M, those expectations are going to be there, not only for a college football playoff berth, but for a national championship, especially when you're paying the guy as much as you're paying him. You know, it's national championship or bust almost. Yeah, what you said actually makes me think exactly of what people used to say about Mac Brown his last few years in Austin. That's yeah, a, yeah, is absolutely. It, yeah, so hey, man, tell, tell, tell everybody where they can find your work. So uh, my Twitter, at TaylorTravis15. I'm also a... Fill in host at Sports Radio 1150 and the Zone 102.7 FM. You can go to www.zone1150.com, find some of my podcasts there. Um, but yeah, I cover the Aggies all the time. So if you ever want any Texas A&M scoop, you can go to my Twitter and I'm sure you'll find it. Yeah, and what we were talking beforehand, we can't say anything yet, but there might be a little something else that's added to your resume pretty soon. Uh, that, right, uh, right. I know a little something about, but we'll, we'll talk about that at a future time. <laughs> Exactly. Keep an, eye, keep an eye on my Twitter, and I'm sure the news will come out pretty soon. Yeah. Hey, man, thanks a bunch. Really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, let's get the let's make the Aggies 
interesting and, and, and relevant again pretty quickly here in the SEC. Anytime you want to talk Aggie football, man, just let me know. Thanks again for listening. And if you're new to the show, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, or the TuneIn app. You can keep up with this show and my daily Locked On Texans podcast on Twitter and Facebook or by going to HoustonSportsTalk.net or LockedOnTexans.com.